every year of my career has been so different than the year before. Like at first it was like, oh, this big celebrity came. So that gave us a huge bump. The year after, oh, we got on, you know, the doctor show 10 times, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. So huge bump. The year after I got my own Netflix show, huge bump. The year after we got nominated for an Emmy, huge, an an Emmy, like huge bump. Like, (laughs) so I feel like everybody would come into my practice to sort of, or like every new manager that I had would be like, okay, well, let's go for like a 15% growth year over year. And I'm like, well, we're at like 50% growth year over year. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Dr. Sheila Nazarian. How you doing? Hi, how are you, Eric? So glad we finally made this happen. Yeah, me too, me too. So as mentioned, got to start it off. I assume you're born and you immediately come out. You maybe start making comments on how you could fix the doctor's profile or make some changes. Uh, how, you know, I assume that from day one, you were into plastic surgery, right? Not at all. I actually was kind of like super nerdy and like didn't really identify as attractive, I would say, uh, probably until college. We were immigrants and it was kind of like a tough fitting in early on, uh, you know, with Persian culture, we weren't allowed to shave our legs. You weren't allowed to do certain things that, you know, you, if you say like, oh, I want to shave my legs, your parents are like, why are you trying to get a boyfriend? Like it was like considered an act of promiscuity. So I think that it was kind of uh, not top of mind. I would say we didn't have a lot when we got here. I wasn't in the best fashion. So I would say no, it was more about just study, you know, family studying the whole immigrant like playbook. Um, You were born in Iran, right? I was born in New York as an anchor baby. My mom came when she was nine months pregnant. And then when I was one month old, we went back to Iran. It was 1979. The revolution started. We're Jewish. They wouldn't let us leave. So we were kind of stuck. Got it. So you had to, so in 1979, you wanted to stay, but, or you wanted to leave, but you had to stay. No, I mean, my, you know, my dad had a, practice there he was a physician as well and his mom was old she was there it's not like we're just gonna abandon you know my grandma so we went back and you know i feel like as with all revolutions you don't actually like believe it's gonna happen so it's almost like you know i don't know if you remember but before the ukraine thing happened you know russia invading ukraine like the day before people were out at coffee shops and they're like nothing's gonna happen and like russia's lined up across the border and they're like whatever they're just bluffing so i feel like you know my parents going back um to Iran, I just when when this that that whole situation happened, it kind of reminded me like I wonder if that's what it was like yeah. right before the revolution in Iran. Like people just didn't believe that something so drastic could happen. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And so you guys stuck it out in Iran during the revolution. Is that what you're saying, though? We did. Um, and the Iran-Iraq War happened, and we were there. And then in 1985 is when we escaped. And how old were you? So you were six. I was six. Um, yeah, I was around six uh, at that time. And then um, we went through the desert into Pakistan. And then we waited in Pakistan for three months uh, for our visas to come through. And we spent about a month in Vienna where we reunited with my father. He, he kind of left and said he was going on a medical conference. And then me, my mom and my sister escaped. And so he was working in, at, in Vienna trying to get us the visas. And so after three months, we met with him. We were in Vienna for a month and then finally made it to the U.S. And did you land right in Los Angeles or where did you end up? 
we were in New York at first, and then I think it was too cold, so my family's like, okay, we're going to L.A. We had family both in New York and L.A., so we just stayed with one of my mom's sisters. Yeah. And I have a ton of Persian friends, but honestly, I don't think I've had anyone talk about this on the podcast. Like, what was, like, as a six-year-old, do you remember what that was like, like, dropping into New York and did, were your was your dad able to get out with money like how did you guys how were you able to make such a decision of like we're gonna land in New York ah let's move to LA like you know you just yeah I mean, my mom's sisters she has five sisters so three of them were in New York and two of them were in LA so it was Got kind it. of like one or the other and when we came I think we came with about like 110 or 150 thousand dollars we had kind of we were sending it out to somebody in the in the states or in Switzerland I don't know and then we realized like they were embezzling it and then so we like found somebody else but you would send it like little spurts and then have them deposit it into an account but you know as you know in LA it's not that much but it did hold us over until my father could take the boards again and then get a job yeah got it so your dad came over and he just continued as a physician in LA yes nice and so in was it Beverly Hills that you grew up in yeah, so we were in the slums of Beverly Hills, I like to call it. You know, there's different areas in Beverly Hills, but we were just in an apartment, you know, kind of. Great schools. I know that was a huge yeah. Persian cultural thing. It was like, we're going to go to the great schools. We're going to, that's Beverly Hills attracted that a lot of that community. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, when I was in elementary school, 50% of the property in the, in Beverly Hills was owned by Persian Jews. Yeah. Sounds right. And so you, and as you said, you came here and the cultural assimilation, did you speak fluent English from as a kid or did you? No, I spoke no English. I was in ESL for a few months uh, yeah. and learned, picked it up pretty quickly. I feel like in the first grade, you pick it up pretty quickly. Yeah. So got it. And so you land in LA, pick it up. And as you said, like during that elementary school time, like, did you, I guess you did have a Persian community around you. Did you find quick friends and like you were kind of all in this together? How was that experience? Yeah. I mean, I found friends, but I was just like, again, very nerdy. I was very smart. I was at like the top of the class. I remember one of my friends telling me like, don't raise your hand. The boys don't like it. And I just like, I I was always like a kind of like, I couldn't help myself. And I still can't help myself. As you know, I speak out a lot. Personality, uh, toxic trait. I was a nerd. I didn't, I, I, uh, had one good friend and then I, you know, knew that and she wasn't Persian. <laughs> well, that's great though. And so you, and you say you were a nerd, like what did that manifest as? Were you reading a lot? Were you, st- what were you studying? Like, what were you into? I studied, I was a ballet dancer, but like, you know, I would, I was getting sent to school with like sheep brains in pita bread you know, as my lunch, like, it's like that whole immigrant thing. And everybody's got their cute lunchables. And I'm sitting there with soggy pita bread filled with sheep brains. Like, yeah, (laughs) I was a nerd. (laughs) You're different. Yeah, it's fine. But and so what were you interested in as a kid? Like, what, what, where were you? What were you passionate about growing up? I was super into like, craftiness. I was always like, super crafty. Like I would make stuff out of like, duct tape and, and paper bags. I was also in like, I, I got into gifted education pretty quickly. And we would do cool stuff. Like we had an inventors contest where we had to like invent something or uh, building yeah. stuff with spaghetti. And you know, that whole exercise that everybody's doing now. But back then nobody did it, it was like spaghetti and gumdrops, you know, like how tall can you make it stuff like that. I really like like building and architectural and like 3d thinking. I was always really just really into like that outside the box kind of thinking. And I don't know. Got it. And 
did you know, like, at what point do you remember, like, six, seven, eight, like, the whole what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, did you have any thoughts? I think I wanted to be an architect because okay. I like that stuff. And in the fourth grade, I took a wood shop. I think I was the only girl. I almost I almost dropped out. But I really liked, you know, planning it, drawing it out, being super OCD about, like, the lines and even the arrows had to be a certain way. And the number two had to be written a certain way. Um, and then building it, not just drawing it out, but, but building it. So I thought, okay, architecture. And then as I... I became older, I dissected the frog and I was really into science and I was like, okay, well maybe orthopedic surgery because I still get to do hammer and nails and I still get to design kind of. And then I started following around orthopedic surgeon and I was like, this is not creative at all. <laughs> uh, so one of my friends was like, why don't you think about plastic surgery? And I did and it was like perfect. At what age were you with that comment? I was, I think in college. I was I, in college. Yeah. yeah. In high school, what, did you go to college knowing you wanted to be some sort of like pre-medicine, like you wanted to do that? Yeah. I was pretty mad. I thought I was going to do orthopedics and I started following around orthopedic surgeon at St. Vincent's in New York. And it was just literally cookie cutter. Like you literally put something on top of the bone, you cut around it. And then the piece fits into that. Yeah. (laughs) I've been through a few of those. I've broken a few bones in there. And so we, so in high school, like at what point did you switch from architecture to orthopedic surgery? Like where was it? You said to dissect. That was probably like high school to college. Like the begin, I went, I was a pre-med. So it was like in high school, I kind of switched over to yeah. over and then in, um, once I started actually following around orthopedic surgeon, I was like, mm. yeah, that's why you got to go try these things out. <laughs> try it out. Yeah. The perception of a job and the reality of a job are very different things. All right. So you, you get a bug in your ear that you're like, okay, maybe plastic surgery. And wh- where'd you go to school? By the way, you said New York, but where were you? Going? I was at Columbia for undergrad. Got it. And so through that, did you ever have doubts in that? Or at that point, like right when you said, this is boring plastic surgery, were you like committed fully? Like I'm going to be in plastic no, surgery. No, then I went and followed a plastic surgeon around and then I was yeah. pretty committed. Yeah. Nice. And that was all I think you have to kind of commit to that, especially like as soon as you get into med school, I feel like yeah. you got to know pretty early you got to do the right because it's so competitive. Back then, I think there was like 75 spots in the whole country, whereas like internal medicine, there might be like 75 spots in one hospital. Right. Well, you got to kind of prepare everything to be like that perfect person to even get the interview yeah and so how what what did that preparing look like like again your undergrad you decide you love the idea of plastic surgery what did you do to make that happen i literally decided okay where do i want to go and i said i want to go to la i want to live there i need to be in a place where there's like lots of jews so i can meet a good jewish boy uh i think that's the only reason actually my dad let me go away to college by the way like persian girls did not go away or leave their house until they were married back then uh but he's like okay your sister's in new york and there's a big jewish population and you can go to Columbia. I was like, okay. So uh, I ended up going to Albert Einstein, which is Yeshiva's medical school in New York, in the Bronx. And so I was in New York, but every time I would have vacation, I would fly out to USC. I I looked at LA. It was either UCLA plastic surgery or USC plastic surgery. And apparently a lot of the UCLA people were, you know, private practice. So you didn't even, even get to do a lot during the surgery, like when you were learning. But they would come to USC, like the UCLA residents would come to USC for some of their training. So I was like, okay, USC. So every vacation I had, I would fly in, I would meet with the chairman at USC. And I'd be like, how could I be a more attractive candidate? He's like, you don't have any research. I was like, okay, I'm going to go do research. So I started, I got into a research lab and then I'll come back and be like, I'm doing research. What else can I do? So, and I feel like a lot of people don't do that. They don't actually like go and meet 
What's with what? the person that they want to later have accept them, and I feel like it's a double-edged sword because if you're psycho, then they'll definitely not take you. Yep. But if you you know you're not psycho, then it's kind of a good way to get to know everybody in that program even before you apply. Yeah. No. It's it's funny you say that. I've heard that in business too, where it's like if you know you want to sell your business, go call the people that would buy it and ask them what they want to see and do that. Like it's it's the the idea of like just going to the person that's your gatekeeper and saying what can I do to for you to open the gate. Like the most people don't think that way, and it's such a great way to do it makes it takes a lot of the anxiety and stress out of what am i gonna what's gonna happen you just you teed it up you went and did the yeah, work and it's just an open and honest conversation about you know i i want you guys like no shame in it like how do i make you want me back kind of yep. That's awesome. And so I assume it worked. It worked. And it was so stressful because I'll tell you in, in uh, residency, when you're getting accepted into a residency, you don't get to choose where you go. Like basically you get interviews. So I had like seven interviews and I met my husband three months before I had to rank the programs that I interviewed at. Yeah. And then those programs rank the people they interviewed. And so it goes into a computer, it spits out where you're going to go. So if you rank like Idaho or you rank Minnesota, like whatever, wherever you rank, if that computer spits out that you, you matched like, and you match and you have to go, it's binding. Yeah. So I met yeah. my husband three months before the rank list was due. Yeah. And you have to understand my, my, like, like much of my, you know, professional life or, or as a student, I was wanting to become a plastic surgeon and you meet this guy three months before and he's like, okay, only rank LA and we can get engaged or you can rank everywhere and we don't get engaged because yeah. you know what yeah. if I we get engaged and I end up in Idaho. Yeah. So um I was like okay and I only ranked LA which is called suicide matching. And so, <laughs> so basically I was it's like, like if you I know like you know I could have just literally given up my entire career for this guy that I met three months before. And this was but I ended up for context mm-hmm. this is means like if the LA places don't rank you high, you're out. Like there's just I'm no out. Problem. My yeah. entire career is over and you don't get a second chance. Like plastic surgery is so competitive. Yeah, I, I, I've interviewed for this now, like, you know, for other people. And literally, if there's one flaw in the application, you throw it in the center, you throw it on the floor. Like, it's that limited in what, like, even interviews it's are so limited. So um, I ended up matching two, which was like a freaking miracle. And then like 15 years after that, I was going for a walk with one of the general surgery attendings. We became friends. And she's like, no, you were ranked to match. Like, you were ranked top three. You were going to match. But I didn't know that. So you can't. <laughs> I found out like 15 years later that like I didn't need to stress out, but <laughs> it's so funny how they do, they build these programs that like the stress maybe isn't that necessary, but they just make it that stressful. It was, it was very stressful. So you ended up matching, where'd you end up with your residence? At USD, yeah. University of Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And so was that everything you thought it was? Like, you know, you had already followed up Dr. Round, so you got in, you had, I guess you really paid attention. You went in pretty eyes wide open talking to them. I did. I went in eyes wide open. I knew probably 90% of the um, staff where I, I even set foot as a resident on, in that hospital. Super tough program, super outstanding training. They knew me, I knew them. It was great. And how long did that last, that program? Uh, so I did three years of general surgery. Then I took two year. I had, I had one baby, uh, my second year of general surgery. I was seven months pregnant. When I finished. Which is but well known, if you know, to be like the most grueling part of any type of medical. It was crazy. Life. It's like 80 yeah. hours a week, every third night in the hospital. But I had one baby my second year. Then I had a seven months pregnant when I finished my third year. And then I took a two year break where I did a master's in medical management at the Marshall School of Business. I was 
was the head of the uh, Division of Plastic Surgery's research um, efforts. And I had my third, I had my second child, my son. Wow. Yeah. And then I went back af- after a two-year gap. I went back and did three years of plastic surgery. And then I had my third child, this, the second year of um, plastic surgery. So how many years of that is total between residency and finishing your plastic surgery? That's uh, so it was eight years of residency, basically, with that, with that two-year research. Yeah. Was it eight years plus the two year or eight years, including the two? No, no, no. It was six years plus. Yeah. Um, cool. Got it. So years, eight yeah. years, you have three kids and get through residency. How did you balance that? I mean, not to, I, I hate I to. I didn't. Uh, there was zero balance. It was awful. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I did it and I would probably do it again. I don't know how the heck I survived it. Yeah. I was so exhausted. Uh, like I would drive home after being on call and I'd call my husband to come like lift me out of the car. Like I literally could not push off to get myself out of the car. I was, it was really, really hard. And that but I had a mom and I had the, I had the family. We, it's not like we were traveling anyway. My husband was beginning his practice. He's a neurosurgeon. So he'd been away for like 14 years at UC Davis doing medical school and his residency. So it's like he was building his brand new practice. I was in residency. So I'm like, we're not traveling anyway. It's not like we're going to go like be that newlywed couple. Uh, So might as well bust out the kids. So we did. That's awesome. Uh, might as well. Well, it seems like it worked out. But okay, so you get through all this and how, like, completing it after the eight years, what, what happens next after you're done with your plastic surgery residency? So I was, you know, they're telling me or they were encouraging me to do an aesthetics fellowship. And my husband was like, you do any more training and I'm going to like freaking like peace out. And I was like, okay, no more training. So he was um, part of a group practice and he was looking to kind of go out on his own and I graduated. And so, you know, I had the business background. I knew how to do a business plan. Uh, and so I started just building out an office for both of us to share. So initially we, he, he left that group. I had left, you know, I had graduated residency and we went into one office and, and we were there after about four years, I moved out into a new building. And then a year later, he started building a surgery center and attached his office to the other. So it's like my office, the surgery centers in p- between us and then his office. And so we both so, share the surgery center. So you graduated from, or sorry, finished residency and immediately went out off on your own as a plastic surgeon. Right. Is that, is that common? No. I, 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 and again, I have no idea, but I wouldn't assume so. I'd assume you generally work in another person's practice or something. You do, or you, or you'll, yeah, you'll go work in a hospital. You work in somebody yeah. else's practice at first, but um, I knew we were sharing that space, and I knew that he was going to be paying that rent anyway. So I was like, okay, that's that's a kind of cuts down on my overhead. So all I needed was somebody to answer my phones in the beginning, yeah. um, and then yeah, she sat next to me and answered his phone. So yeah. so it was kind of, and I and I just remember being so slow. Nobody who no, knew who I was. I was like coming off of the fumes and the cortisol levels of, re- of being a resident. Um, and he was just like, Sheila, take it easy. It's going to be okay. Before you know, it, you're going to be busier than you want to be. You just yeah. take one foot in front of the other, build that ideal practice that you want for yourself. And that's kind of what I did. I was going to say a good significant other goes a long way in building these things. I've seen we were just time. literally talking about that yesterday. We were driving to these outlet, this outlet mall. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's needed like Nike. Um, and so we were just saying like, you know, we we're talking, I don't know how it came up but really i think like your happiness in life is really very much determined by not just your spouse but also any business partners you bring in oh, it yeah. could be like the difference between a spouse, heaven and how yeah yeah business partners are in some ways similar to a 
getting right. We joke, my business partner and I joke about that all the time that we're work wives. Like it's yeah. You know, my wife and him went on a golf outing together just for the day and called mm-hmm. it the like Eric significant other 2021 golf outing or something like that. Like it's <laughs> we've been doing business together for a decade. So like, wow, we're all, we're all married, so to speak. And it's, yeah, it's how it feels. But at the same time, again, I've seen a lot that supportive side of things where it's like, you might put pressure on yourselves, but to hear from that person that's in it with you to say, it's cool. Like, Take a breath. You've been grinding for eight years. You can take it a little mm-hmm. slow for a second. Probably helped a lot versus like just not being slow. And maybe you would have made a more immediate decision about what you needed to do if you didn't have that, you know, backstop, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get the phone to start to ring? How did you get start picking up? Yeah, I started making YouTube videos. I, back then, I didn't even know what I was really doing, but I was one of the You're first plastic surgeons. It was 2013. Yeah, so, yeah, I was one of the first plastic surgeons to make YouTube videos. And back then, our societies very much looked down on social media, any form of advertising. I remember I was on the professionalism committee, and my old chairman stood up in, in front of the entire department and said, I don't know why you're talking about professionalism with all your advertising. I mean, it was really like a lot of, a lot of pushback, but again, I knew that, you know, I was a woman, I'm brown. I don't look like an alien already. That was very, very, uh, advantageous in my uh, line of work. And so, you know, I did a lot of advertising and made a lot of videos and Google owned YouTube. I didn't know that at the time. So my SEO was through the roof two years out of residency. I was on the number one page of Google when you search Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. And just to give you an idea, there's 31 plastic surgeons just in my building alone wow. and it's a and it's a four-story building it's not like a 20-story building it's a four-story building i didn't realize it was that and obviously i know there's a lot of beverly hills plastic surgeons but i didn't realize it was to that level so yeah and frankly there's a benefit there where the brand of beverly hills and plastic surgery it's like miami and beverly hills are the two places people think of these days so having that as a destination having that seo is huge so that so it was digital marketing so to speak that actually got the business. it was digital marketing and everybody thought you know and and also i gave this talk i think you know my rise to kind of success was very quick so i was getting invited to speak at a lot of our um meetings and uh, they put me on a panel with like the who's who of plastic surgery and it was me and i'm this young girl and three guys who are like you know the, the who you think about when you think of plastic surgery and it was called show me the money the name of the talk which is kind of gross but that's what it was yeah. and so it, we basically had to talk about where the money was coming from in our practice so it forced me to really look at what's sticking yeah. so i yeah. looked at yelp i looked looked at Instagram. I looked at Facebook. I looked at YouTube. And what I did very early on is my electronic medical record. I wrote that, you know, you have to write where this person found us. Otherwise you won't even be able to advance to the screen to schedule them for an appointment. So very early on people answering my phones, they had to enter where the person found me. And so I could calculate exactly what my ROI was on each digital channel. And I had the first paper on ROI on social media in any industry worldwide. So that's still my my article. It still gets quoted and everything. So it was the ROI of social media. And I could say I made exactly this many dollars from Google. I made exactly this many dollars from TV appearances. I made, and so that was, and I started doing that every year and really analyzing what's working, what's not. Where am I putting my, I think back then I was only putting $500 into SEO a month. And so I saw, oh my God, even though I'm, I'm, I have a big Instagram following, double my income is coming from SEO, Google search. Yeah. And so I really started expanding my, investment into SEO. 
go, you know? So just, you know, making that kind of like eyes wide open investing that you guys, I think in business and marketing already knew doctors didn't know that. I feel like we're 20 years behind what you guys know. It's most industries outside of it. Like, yeah, doctors, dentists, real estate companies. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it takes stumbling into it because of a necessity for most of these people to start taking advantage of it. A little more mainstream these days though. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's, and so you start immediately getting speaking. And so how did people know you were having early success? Like, how did they look to you as young and successful? Like, how did that get out? I mean, I think I was kind of everywhere. I was all over TV because what happened is when these, I never had a publicist or anything. These TV people, when they Googled, you know, I need somebody like an expert on buckle fat removal or breast augmentation. You know, on Google, that first line is is a bunch of videos. I was all the videos. And then it was kind of like my video resume. And so people were like, okay, she's cool on camera. She knows how to explain things. So literally I was like on every show, no publicist. And so people started seeing me everywhere. And then my Instagram started going crazy. And so people were like, okay, she's getting old. And then, oh, and then I put up like a bunch of billboards around town. And that was like a huge big, go big or go home. I think I had like 40 billboards up all at once, like three on the same block. Like it was crazy. And so I think, you know, people started paying attention, I think, because people were talking behind my back, to be honest with you. And then, you know, really kind of seeing like, no, holy shit, like she knows business or, oh, maybe we can have her teach us how she did social media media or you know after like talking crap about me in the boardrooms for like five years i was say so when did this take like when did you hit that point that it really started taking off like what what how many years ago was that can i just tell you eric honestly like Every year, except for this year, because I think we, we hit a really big peak after COVID, yeah. has yeah. been a, a massive growth. Like it's when been, did- and it's been so different. Every year of my career has been so different than the year before. Like at first it was like, oh, this big celebrity came. So that gave us a huge bump. The yeah. year after, oh, we got on, you know, the doctor show 10 times, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. So huge bump. The year after I got my own Netflix show, huge bump. The year after we got nominated for an Emmy, huge, huge an, an Emmy, like huge bump. Like, so I feel like everybody that would come into my practice to sort of, or like every new manager that I had would be like, okay, well, let's go for like a 15% growth year over year and i'm like well we're at like 50 percent growth year over year (laughs) so it's it's been like a learning thing every year and every time i think okay i got it i know what to do now something else happens like covid and you're like okay i don't know anything (laughs) yeah that's absolutely when when did you start your own practice what year was that uh 2013 oh that's right yeah got it okay and so as things progressed like what was you, you were building this, you know, sort of media brand while also having like how many surgeries were you doing a week, give or take? It honestly depends. Um, it could be zero. It could be 10. Like it depends on the size of the surgery. It depends on the season. But what I realized is, you know, every time I would book out two months, I would raise my prices. I realized like it's supply and demand. So I, I was on stage with a bunch of doctors that were like, yeah, I'm booked out two years. And I'm looking at them like, you're a horrible business person. Like... <laughs> Maybe you should raise your prices, you know? I just sort of um, stuck with that plan. And as a woman, I think it was really difficult because you don't really value yourself. You know, I I know the guys down um, the hallway will be like, I'm the world's best plastic surgeon. Whereas the women are like, I'm all right. You know, like, I think it it took a minute to sort of get to the place that I'm like, no, like I provide great service and I have great results and I care. And, you know, I have a certain aesthetic that people appreciate. And so it took a minute to kind of find my own, like, or maybe just lose the imposter syndrome, I think. And then just really just fall kind of fall into your own when do you feel that kicked in like when did what stage was it was probably i would say four or five years after starting i i really that kicked in so i'll say somewhere around like 
2018. And then did you see a spike post COVID because people are sitting on Zoom and everything and just... Oh my God. It was a massive spike in all aspects. I have an e-commerce site where we sell medical grade skincare. That was an 8x boom um, because of COVID. It was crazy. Now it's kind of gone back down a little bit. We're still higher than before, but it's, you know, not like that. You're good. Yeah. I think it's everybody. Yeah. I've been talking. I'm like, am I okay? 2,000 companies data in real time. I can tell you it's everybody. It's not. There's very that's what I hear. Yeah. And then surgeries kind of boomed a lot. And then it kind of lulled a little bit because of travel. I always say my number one competitor is travel. Yep. So in yep. like August and September of this year, it was super slow. And I was like, what is happening? And then now it's definitely like picked back up. But what I will tell you is people have more anxiety now than I've ever seen before. Like we have people book surgeries and a week later cancel it and be like, no, 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 no I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I, and I've never seen that before. Whereas, you know, before people will be like, okay, it took me a while to get here. I'm ready and move forward. Now people are like, it took me a while to get here. And then like, I would say like 15% of people are like, no, never mind, never mind. I'm, I'm too, they're, they're almost like, it's like this higher level of anxiety that I haven't really witnessed before. What do you think that comes from? That's an interesting like, observation. I think it might be the economy. Mm-hmm. One, I think that it might be uh, being faced with one's mortality. Which, which could go either way. I feel like after COVID, people were like, you know, I can go anytime. I have to take care of myself and enjoy my life to the fullest. But I don't know if now it's like, it's kind of like, like flipped around a little bit where people are like, no, I have too many people to take care of. I'm not going to risk. This is like just vanity and I'm not going to whatever. So I think yeah. like it kind of like went one way and now it's kind of like showing itself another way. Uh, but I think economy probably has something to do with it. So curious, have a couple more questions for you. Number one, like, yeah. what's next? How do you see this? Like you've been so innovative in the way you've built your business and the way you've built your uh, practice. What is like, and you now got the skin medical grade skincare, like, what do you see? What's your vision coming down the next five years? Or yeah, whatever. That you know, is. I think I just want like a super healthy practice, which I have. Um, and I enjoy I always say that's kind of like my social hour. I'm like, I don't get out much. I don't enjoy like staying at parties late anymore. I feel like I yeah. go about like 10 o'clock. I'm like, okay, woo, it's getting kind of late. So I feel like my patients are self selected to be people that are like super you know, successful, intelligent, they work out, they're eating organic food, they're doing all that stuff. And they just need help with this one little thing. So I really actually enjoy very much learning from them and speaking to them. I feel like we talk about surgery for like five minutes and then we talk about like politics or economy or whatever for the rest of the time. So I I think that I'm in a really comfortable place in my practice right now. We've brought in a lot of changes, a lot of consultants, um, a lot of people left because we started holding them accountable. I think I was super loosey-goosey and removed beforehand. And now I'm like, okay, give me the KPIs. Like, you know, this is your goal for today. You know, you can't go overtime. If you do, you're getting written up. Got to take your lunch break on time. It'll get written up. A lot of people stepped out. They were like, I'm out. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people stepped in. And so I find that things are just running with a lot more trust and um, clarity where people yep. just know what they're supposed to do. So I'm actually enjoying it more. Yep. Um, the spa also is is running better, still kind of working out the kinks now that the surgical side is all cleared out with the right people in place. Now I feel like moving on to the spa, possibly expanding into Lake Tahoe area. Mm-hmm. And then with the skin spot, which is the e-commerce site, that's my scalable business. So mm-hmm. I really, I'm really focused on bringing in the right people 
And also uh, I got to say, like, you know, how we met was YPO and YPO has really helped me understand that I got to have the right people in place and, yeah. and every business depends on that. So just hired someone. She lives in South Carolina, tons of, uh, tons of experience on in fashion and skincare on e-commerce. Right. So bringing her in to sort of really take, take the ship and steer it in the right direction. But I think that now that things are a little bit more settled out with my practice, I have a little bit more brain space to think creatively. I have to say like post COVID with people quiet quitting and all of that stuff, I literally felt like I was in war, you know, and you know, I, in high school, yeah. In high school, they said, you know, when, when, in times of war, the arts suffer, people aren't going to the opera, people aren't going to the ballet during times of war. And I literally felt like my creative, uh, like I couldn't be as creative because I was putting out fires and I was in war and this person said this and often this drama and like I, I feel like I'm finally coming out of war and I can really be creative which is where I want to be mentally it's it's so important as someone that's on you're 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 a doctor you're also an entrepreneur and like being an entrepreneur like when you're dealing with that stuff it is the most energy sapping deflative thing and from what I, I've talked to a lot of business owners just like you and it's like this year has been that for everyone that's why like I'm sharing with you like most companies have not done well this year in terms of growth like plenty mm-hmm. of I've done fine they're not dying but they've right. like I the most most common line I've heard this year, which the last time I heard this line was 2008, was we worked our asses off. It was painful. We grinded and we stayed in business. And it's like, we didn't grow. We just kept it. We did it. We made it through. That doesn't mean it's over, but it's like, it's that was this year for more businesses than not that I've seen. Is that yeah, so like- see, in 2008 is when I went into my research years. Yeah. So I wasn't, and you know, my husband's a spine surgeon, so people need him. Like, they're yeah. they're paralyzed. They're not going to say, oh, I'm going to hold off yeah. on this. Like, you know, so, but yeah, I, I this is the first time I'm actually going through an economic challenge. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I'll tell you. Most people between, mm-hmm. most people under 50, honestly, because if you were, you know, 12 or no, 14 years ago, like, yeah. okay, you're, you're probably not building your own thing at 35 is not common. So like, it's, yeah, it's very unlikely that people had an established business, which meant they probably started by 30, which happens. Or I started before I was 30, but most mm-hmm. people don't. And so they didn't go through an upswing and then a downturn. And now they're on their upswing. And that's not common for people, you know, in our generation. But I'm just happy that like, I'm well diversified. You know, I'm happy yeah. that um, like, for example, when our practices were shut down for two months, like you guys could work from home, we were shut down. I couldn't cut anybody. I couldn't inject anybody. I couldn't laser anybody, but I had the skin spot, you know, yeah. so I sent everyone home with a, you know, Surface Pro and one of the office boy bones. And we were all working on different aspects of the skin spot. And thank God the e-commerce, because people couldn't go see their doctor, they were doing all, I'm like, here's a machine you can use at home. Here's a skincare that's going to keep your collagen going. So, um, so thank God we were well diverse. So that was a huge learning point for me is not just having one business, but having related businesses that kind of function differently, which which sucks in a way because you have to learn the languages of all all the different businesses, but it really saved us. Yeah, that makes sense. So last question for you. What would be, I mean, you grinded through quite a lot to get to where you are in terms of like, again, three kids, wall in residency, like this whole thing. Um, what would be your advice to someone that wants to pursue their dream that's just getting started? Like what's something you either wish you heard or something that you did hear that got you through? Yeah, what would be that one piece of advice? Um, I would say, imagine your ideal life, all aspects of it, not just, you know, the business. Cause what I find with very like entrepreneurial 
women especially is they just think they're going to meet that guy and have their kids. And I, and I always just like to remind people, if your ideal vision of what your life is like includes a family, like you got to put as much effort into that, you know, as you do your profession, your profession is going to happen. It's always going to be there, but it's not going to hug you when you come home. So I just want to encourage everyone to sort of make sure they have their eye on the ball when it comes to personal as well as professional. I think that is awesome advice. Well, thank you, Shua. This has been great. And thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.